are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles. I want you to turn to James chapter 5. We're trying to finish up the book of James, and then we're going to be looking at some different topics in the new year. And uh, there's a lot of things that I'll be addressing in the new year. We're going to talk about building resilience in your children. So I've got a book here. I've followed Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's out of South Africa. She's a neurologist and kind of getting prepared for how to build resilience in your children. Uh, I'm also going to be dealing with some controversial things and may get me into trouble. But I was asked this question. Rankin County is in the New York Times for the problems that we've had with the goon squad, with the law enforcement in Rankin County. I was asked this question, is there a pulpit in Rankin County that's spoken to it? And I said, as far as I know in my checking, I haven't heard it yet. That's sad. That is sad when men are profiled, when they're falsely, some of them are falsely accused, sodomized and treated in the way they were treated. So we're going to be dealing with that this year. This is one book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. We're going to be looking at the militarization of our police department, of our law enforcement. There's some great books right now, great uh, questions that are being asked. And so we're going to be looking at that. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, at, at our penal system. We're going to be looking at prisons. Uh, Why are they disproportionately African-American? What what do we need to do to change our, our culture, our society? And what responsibility does the church... Let me tell you, the church is too silent on too many issues. And that's why Southern Baptists have diminished drastically because we are not plugged into some of the issues that our country faces right now. So we're going to be dealing with that. And uh, there's other books up here. I'm going to grab a couple of them because I'm going to be using them in just a moment. But I want you to take your Bibles, James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. I've titled the sermon today, When Hurting. When Hurting. In James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, we'll read through verse 16. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well the Lord will raise him up. If he sin, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we love you. Lord, cleanse me. Dear Lord, cleanse me. Let me be a tool in your hand, Lord, for anything that is coming to my eyes, into my ears, anything that in any way would displease you, Lord, cleanse me. Let me be uh, a vehicle, a vessel in your hand. And Lord, may our hearts be open to your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I want to to read, um, I think this is very good. Let me say to young people, if you decide to go to college and you go to, art, uh, you go to any ROTC program, whether it's Army, Navy, whether it's Air Force, in the Air Force, you'll have this experience. 
But let me read to you. This is out of a book. It's called Hope is the First Dose. It's written by W. Lee Warren. He's a, he's a surgeon. He's a doctor in, in the military. And he writes this. Listen to what he writes here. He said, Once when I was a student at the United States Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine, I received a ride in a T-37 jet trainer aircraft so, can I, so that I could learn about the gravi gravitational forces that pilots' bodies are exposed to. This experience would help me be a better flight surgeon and a better Air Force physician. Prior to the flight, the crew chief responsible for the airplane gave me a briefing on the things I needed to know for a safe flight. He walked me to the plane, helped me get settled into the cockpit. He fastened my safety harness around me and then directed my attention to the floor under my feet. Sir, he said in a deep Texas drawl, keep your feet off them pedals lest you want to turn this into a really short trip. Do you understand? I nodded. Yes, Sergeant. Good, he said. And Lieutenant, you see that yellow handle there? I noticed the U-shaped metal handle just in front of my seat. It was labeled ejection, seat, caution. Yes, Sergeant, I see it, he said. He leaned closer and said in a louder voice, there ain't no rocket in this seat. Only one like it in the whole Air Force, just a big old spring. If you should pull that handle before you reach 1,000 feet of altitude, sir, you will be killed. Do you understand, Lieutenant? I do. I won't touch it, I said. He smiled, straightened, and gave a crisp salute. I returned the salute, and he said, You have yourself a nice flight, then, Lieutenant, keep your feet still, though. He walked away. The pilot climbed into the cockpit. We had an amazing, uneventful flight outside of a little vomiting and a lot of prayer while he introduced me to aerobatics. You know, he went on to make this statement, and I wrote it in my notes because I think it's so good. He said, this book is about what happens when life pulls the yellow handle before you've reached a safe altitude. You get ejected from everything you know. You're launched into a dangerous and seemingly impossible trajectory that feels completely out of your control and unsurvival, unsurvivable. There's no rocket in the seat. You're going to fall. And you may say, well, what happened to him? He tells, he goes on. In fact, it's, it's worth me. If I can find it, it's worth reading. Listen to what he went on to say and why he's written this book. He says, somebody asked, uh, how many children do you have? How many children do you have? He said, I stall and stumble. He said, then I tell the, then I tell the truth, as least as far as I can understand it. He said, my son was stabbed in the neck. And that's when every single time I realized that everyone in the room has stopped talking so my words hit everyone's ear like I am speaking directly into them. He said, a great way to bring a party to a screeching halt 
and then I can't stop myself. I tell you that he and his best friend both died. There were three knives, multiple stab wounds, blood everywhere. The police in this deep south small town spent a nanosecond in the house and said, Mitch, my son, killed his friend and then himself. He said Mitch had a cast on his arm and all the knives had blood on them, yet the police did not even check for fingerprints or call for detectives to investigate. It was an open and shut case for them, nothing to see here, clean up the scene, put it in the papers as fact and move on. But it was not for us. Mitch was not a fighter. His drug and alcohol screen was negative. He loved this other boy and he hated violence. So the idea of him killing someone and then himself is impossible for me as a dad to contemplate. You, you never know when life is going to throw you a real curve. And so James is talking here. And I want you to look in James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. James says, is any of you in trouble? He should do what? He should pray. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, the Greek word here for suffering or trouble is a broad one, includes not only, listen, not only physical suffering, but mental and emotional anguish as well. This does not mean that God will immediately answer when you and I are in trouble and we ask God to step into the situation. Sometimes God is not a send-immediately relief. He's not instant gratification. He's not a mail-order God on Amazon. He's not a divine Santa Claus that we crawl into his lap and we make our demands. That's health and wealth theology. And if you want to hear that, you don't need to be here. You need to be at home watching TV. Because that's where you'll hear it. But the, but the picture here is, is that you and I are in trouble. We're in difficulty. There's something wrong. And in that moment, we are calling the presence of God into the situation. We are inviting God in, His presence, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, His indwelling Holy Spirit into the situation that we're in so that immediately God says, you're not alone. You know, a lot of times I've told you when I'm struggling in difficulty or things are going wrong in my life, I start singing that song, Where Could I Go But To The Lord? Oh, where could I go but to the Lord? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to keep me to the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? Abraham Lincoln said these words. He wrote, When I left Springfield, I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of soldiers, both Union and Confederate, I then and there consecrated my life to Christ. And he ended with this with an exclamation point. Yes, I do love Jesus. Abraham Lincoln. Wiersbe said this, Warren Wiersbe said, as God's people go through life, they often must, listen, endure difficulties. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Sooner or later, you and I are going to be in trouble and we're going to need him. Right? 
And so Wiersbe said, as God's people go through life, they often must endure difficulties that are not the result, listen to this, that are not the result or sin, of sin or chastening of the Lord. Sometimes when we go through difficulties, a trial, we get in trouble, things are not working out in our life, immediately the accuser of the brethren gets in our head and says, well, I wonder what you're hiding. I wonder what you've been doing. Wearsby says that sometimes, and I agree with him, that it is not due to the result of sin or the chastening of the Lord. Job was innocent, and yet he went through great trouble, great heartache. You know, God said of Job to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Listen to this. There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. There's no sin at all in his life. And yet he has trouble. Wiersbe went on to make this statement. He said, we should pray asking God for the wisdom. We need to understand the situation and use it to his glory. God, I'm in trouble. God, there's something wrong right now. God, I'm hurting. It may be physical, it may be financial, it may be in a relationship, it may be being a parent, whatever it is, in that moment when you and I simply say, God, I'm in trouble, I need you immediately. The presence of God is all over you, all over that situation, and God is here, and sometimes the trouble that you're in has nothing to do with sin. God is not chastening you, God is not punishing you, God is growing you. And you and I need the Lord. You know, prayer can remove affliction, but sometimes prayer gives us spiritual insight. You remember? Here's, if, if you look at it this way, if this is creation, there's the beginning of time, the consummation of the age, this time, space, and matter. This is heaven. The theological term transcendent means that God is above and outside of his creation. So when you and I are going through trouble or a difficulty and we call God into the situation, God will give us wisdom. What is that wisdom? It's God giving you his perspective on my suffering. Here I am in the middle of trouble and I'm saying, God, I don't understand. I need your help. And God says, I'm going to bring you to a level of wisdom to where you're going to see what I'm doing because I'm doing something. And you give it time, and God will show you very clearly. I want you to take a, take a left. Look at, uh, we'll move quickly. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, beginning of verse 7, watch what Paul said. Paul's in trouble. He's got a thorn in his flesh. Now, it's not a thorn. It's like a stake. S-T-A-K-E. And it's, and, it's, and it's being driven into his side. And Paul's, Paul has repeatedly asked God to remove it. Three times Paul said, God, take away this trouble, this thorn, this stake in, this, in, in my side. But listen to what Paul says in verse 7. To keep me from becoming what? Conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Wow. You say, well, wait a minute. Why did Paul say he experienced this trouble? Because you know what God was saying, Paul? I need to keep you humble. I don't need you to become prideful and arrogant. I don't want you to become conceited. I want to keep you humble because, listen, when, if you and I are not humble, 
in our troubles and our difficulties. Listen, everybody listen. We're not teachable. We're defiant. We're disobedient. And he goes on to say, God said, I, I, I've given you a, a messenger of Satan. The word there is angel. I've given you a fallen angel, a demonic presence, in essence, to keep you humble and dependent upon me. Right? You see it? So he goes on. Now James goes on to say this. He says, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him do what? Let him sing. You know, I wrote down here, does this mean happy meaning happy meaning a smile? A good feeling? You're in a good mood? Is that what it means? It could. But let me tell you what I believe more so what James was saying. He was saying, as Job said in 3510, listen to this, God gives songs in the night and the dark night of the soul when the world is crashing in on us, God gives us a song. You get in the middle of trouble and difficulties, you're in the middle of a trial, and all of a sudden, and I've been there, where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to help me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? God gives you a song. You know why he gives it to you? It starts to quiet you. He starts to say, I'm here. And you know what? There's a joy there's a happiness in that. That's why Job said this, even in the midst of his suffering. Job 35, 10, you can look at it later. God gives songs in the night. Look at Acts chapter 16. Take a left from that passage. Go over to Acts chapter 16. I want you to see this, because is it true? Look at Acts chapter 16. I mean, Acts chapter, let's see, where am I at now? Acts 16, verse 20. Now, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. You remember that? And, and picking up, let me see, let's pick up at about verse 20. It says that um, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them, watch this, to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in stocks. Boy, it couldn't get much worse, could it? Would you say Paul and Silas are in trouble? Look at verse 25. Dog-ear that page of your Bible. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and doing what? Praying and singing hymns to God and what? And the other prisoners were listening to them. You see it? You see, sometimes you and I look our best when we're limping along, when we're struggling, when we're depending on God. 
when we're having to depend on him on every, every breath of our body almost. You see, the singing was not, listen to this, the singing was not due to Paul and Silas being set free from the prison, but rather in spite of the prison. They were singing and rejoicing. It didn't matter whether God released them or not. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Falsely accused? Well, they weren't falsely accused. They refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. You remember they were thrown into that fiery furnace. You know what they were doing in that fiery furnace? You know what the Bible said? They were walking and Nebuchadnezzar jumped up off the throne and he said, he said, hey, he looked at the guards. He said, didn't we throw three men in that furnace? And they said, yes, we did. He said, there's a fourth man in there and he looks like the son of the gods. And guess what? They didn't come out of the furnace. They didn't come out of the trouble until Nebuchadnezzar called them out. They were content to stay there. You see, the truth of the matter is is that sometimes, and I wrote this principle down, the world listens to the child of God, the follower of Jesus Christ, when you and I are in the crucible of God's time, of those times when God is purifying our faith, when he's removing foreign contaminants, when he's in the process of refining us in the trials and difficulties of life. It is said long ago that years ago that when a goldsmith was, re, was refining gold, that he, would, that he would take the gold, put it into a pot, he would raise the fire up to an unbelievable heat, and that gold would begin to boil, literally liquefy and boil. The goldsmith would sit there and watch those impurities. They would come to the surface, they would ignite and burn off. And they said, but how did he know the gold was pure? It was when he could see the reflection of his face in the gold. Sometimes you and I get through trials and difficulties. Sometimes things are not working out. It may not have been in 2023 and you don't know what 2024 holds, but God is in the process of burning off things in your life and in my life that God says we can't have that. You know what God says? We're going to a deeper level. We're going to a whole new level. And the only way I can get you there and God sees his face in your life and in my life. Matthew 5, 3 and 4, and the Beatitudes, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I wrote down here, these are less than de desirable circumstances, and yet God says you're blessed and happy. David Jeremiah says in his book, um, it Turning Toward Integrity, he said the word cheerful is found in one other place in the New Testament. You want to guess where it is? If you're at Acts 16, go to Acts 27. I want you to see this. Acts 27, I love this. This is great. You can hang your hat on this. Shelby, you can take this back to Duke. In Acts chapter 27, watch this, verse 21. Paul and Silas are in a storm. They're on, they're on a prison ship. They're on a ship making their way to, to Rome. They're prisoners. In verse 21, Acts chapter 27, after the men had gone a long time without food. In other words, they're in the middle of a storm. They've thrown all the cargo overboard. They've thrown all the tackle overboard. They're still in this storm. These men are not eating. They, they, things are not looking good. Now watch this. 
After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Oh, don't you love this? Men, you should have taken my advice. You should have listened. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. You see, the ship captain and the owner of the ship, those, those muckety-mucks, those, those high muckety-mucks, see, they made the decision. While the man of God was saying, you don't need to leave this port, this is not the time to sell this ship, you need to stay in port. They said, hey, forget the man of God, we're going to do what we want to do. And now they're losing everything, and they're in a storm, and they're all about to die. Watch this. He says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sell with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on an island. That's the only other time that word is used. Right there. Paul is cheering up those who had disregarded his counsel. Man of God had told them what to do. They disobeyed the man of God. They rejected the man of God. Now they're in the middle of a storm that they made themselves. Just like Jonah. Now they're getting beat up, frightened, and afraid. And yet Paul comes along and says, Cheer up! Be encouraged! And you know what Paul does? He said, Let's eat a meal. In the middle of a storm, Paul said, listen, you're getting weak? Let's eat a meal. That's the man of God in a storm. That's the woman of God in the middle of trouble. They fix their eyes on Jesus. And there's a joy and there's a happiness. And they say to a lost world, cheer up. It's going to be all right. As Sheila said, God's got this. God's got this. If one is happy, if one is cheerful, James said, sing. Sing what? Sing songs of praise. David Jeremiah said this. He said, Pray, listen to this. Praising God is viewed in the same measure of seriousness as praying to God. Did you hear that? James is saying that you and I praising God in the middle of our troubles and difficulties is the equivalent to praying to God. That's powerful. Man, that excites me. Because, you know, and you know, some people never sing. You know, some of you may sit here, you never sing. You know, people say all the time, well, you know, we get in these worship wars. Well, if they would sing the old hymns, I might sing. I thought about that. You hear that every once in a while. That's a bunch of hogwash. If you're a country boy or girl, you know what hogwash is. That's a bunch of hogwash. Some of the modern songs that we sing today, some of them that are being sung even in our service a moment ago, carry the most powerful message as to the character and nature of God. Some of them are direct scriptures that are being put to song. Charles Stanley said this to a group of pastors, over 7,000 pastors gathered years ago back in the 80s when the music was beginning to be revived and it was strong and it was emotional, more demonstrative. Stanley looked at the older pastors and he said, men be, care he said, men be careful. 
Some of you that hymns only and you're fighting anything that's different, he said, be careful because God may be getting the bride, the bride of Christ ready for what we'll do for eternity and that is to sing and worship. You see, James said, listen, when you're happy, no matter what circumstances, there's a joy, there's a happiness, there's a peace, there's a blessedness. James said, just sing. Let me tell you something. Do you sing? Well, I can't. I'm not very good. The Bible didn't tell you to make a, what did the Bible say? Make a joy, joy for what? You know, you hear something, you know. Bob Smith, old blind Bob. Bob Smith would sit in this, stand in this sanctuary. He couldn't see the words of some of these songs. And he'd just bellow out something. One day, my dad took Bob Smith, running an errand for me, but he took Bob Smith to the airport. And Bob can't see, and Dad got him in line. He was standing in line, but Bob didn't realize he was trying to scoot up. And this real fancy woman, she had the jewelry. She looked, oh, she was somebody. And she was in front of Bob, and Bob was about that far from her head. And Bob can whistle so loud. And all of a sudden, Bob broke out in a whistle, and that woman nearly went to heaven. Dad said he just died laughing. You know why? Because Bob has a song in his heart. Do you have a song in your heart? Do you have a song in your heart, young people? You see, God will give you, what did Job say? Job 35.10, God will give you songs in the what? In the night. What he means by that, and that's a man who went through great heartache. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Psalm 51, 7. You know what David said? David said, let me sing again. Let me hear joy again. The psalm writer of Israel said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. Listen to what David said. After he sinned with Bathsheba and after he killed her husband, Uriah, you know what he says in Psalm 51? He says, God, I can't sing anymore. Some people say, well, they don't, they don't sing. I don't, I don't, they don't sing like they did in church when I was a boy. That's not the problem. I want to look at some people and say, you ain't like you were. Your heart's not like it was when you were a boy. You've gotten hard and cold. You're afraid. One of the Martins, I was listening to this gospel group, the Martins, and this woman said, she was speaking at a church, she said, I didn't want to do it, I didn't, I, but, I, but I'm going to tell you something. And she was, uh, they were doing a, a musical performance, a, um, whatever. She said, there was one Sunday I was visiting in this church. She said, I was sitting right over here. And she said, God said to me, run. God, I don't want to run. God said, I want you to run. I want you to run in the worship. Because she could just feel the Holy Spirit all over. She said, well, God, I'm lifting my hands and I'm singing with everything in me. And God said, I want you to run. And finally, she started, said she started pulling off her shoes. Her husband looked and said, what are you doing? She said, God told me to run. And I'm getting ready to run. Listen to me closely. There's only been one man in the entire time I've pastored this church that ever did that. And Sarah and Emily and some of them are smiling and they are smiling because they know who it is. A man by the name of Chris McKinnon. Chris McKinnon was the closest thing we ever saw to Jesus. Chris McKinnon is the most godly man I've ever met in my life. 
Chris McKinnon one day on a one night, on a Sunday night, once a month service where student ministries from other, uh, other uh, churches would come here together. College students would come. This place would be full. We would do dramas. Eric Seals would do some of the art work that you see around this, around this campus here. We were praying and worshiping, and man, I, was, I just was so tuned into the Lord when all of a sudden I saw a shadow go by. But what in the world? And I looked, and Chris McKinnon was running laps in this sanctuary and praising God. You know, David had such a time of worship that you remember his wife hated it. Let me ask you something. Are you free to worship? Are you free to sing? Some of you don't sing. In fact, Sheila said this, some of you have never been to this altar in the entire time I pastored this church. How sad. Let me give you a principle, though, and David learned it. Don't expect the joy of the Lord if there's willful, habitual, unconfessed sin in your life or mine. If you're living in sin, that song, that song will be covered over. It'll die down. And that's why David said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, loosen my lips so that I can sing again. Last one. And listen, he goes on to make this statement. He says, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. Wow. The Greek word here, taneo, it's the idea here of uh, to be without strength. You're sick physically, mentally, spiritually maybe, even emotionally, you're sick. You're weak. James says that those, those times come, even spiritually. There's a scene in The Gladiator with the daughter of the, of the emperor, the emperor of Rome. is being told by the Spaniard, the gladiator, what she must do. And the gladiator, the Spaniard, is in prison and he's in stocks and he's looking at her and he's telling her what she must do. And he says, you're strong. And she said these words. I'll never forget them. What a great line. She looked at the Spaniard and said, I am tired of being strong. Let me ask you something. Are you tired of being strong? You see, sooner or later, we'll be there. You may be sick of heart. You may be sick of mind. You may be sick physically, but we'll be there. And notice this, who summons the leaders of the church? Who summons them? It's the sick. Do you see it? Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church. Well, who are the elders? That's your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, your deacons, those leaders, those men and women that walk with God, and you call them to your home. I will never forget this. I was sick in Africa, sick in Zimbabwe, laying in there on the couch when three African pastors, and Alan, you know most, a couple of them, when they came to my home 
And they said they came by bus, they came at their own expense, they came at great cost to them, and they said, Amaya, Sheila, we've come to pray for Pastor Mufundis Jeff. And I remember those three African men. I was laying there sick. Those three men got down on their knees. They put their hands on me. And God is my witness. They prayed over me and an electrical current went from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. It was like I was being electrocuted in that moment. And I knew that those men had an insight and an understanding and a faith in that moment that I did not have. And I've never forgotten it. David Jeremiah said the elders, the pastor, the staff, even deacons implied are not scouting around trying to find people who are sick. I went to a church one time, a senior adult looked at me. I was drinking coffee with her. She said, Pastor, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you now. If I get sick, I call the doctor and I call my pastor and not in that order. Isn't that powerful? There's nothing here, listen. There's nothing here about going in front of the church. There's nothing here about faith healers and standing in front of a TV camera. If a faith healer can put on a show on TV, then let him drag his butt to Batson and heal the people that are walking, those children that are being escorted up and down that hallway. Former Surgeon General, and I told Sheila, I said, you know, it's a little bit long, and I don't know whether to read it. She said, you need to read that. But the former Surgeon General, uh, let me see if I can find it. He wrote this, and I may not be able to find it, I don't know. I thought it was, let me see, because it's powerful. Well, I can't find it right now. No, it's in this book. Meanwhile, while you're waiting, let me read this to you. It's worth it. The Surgeon General Coop for the United States told about faith healers. He said, we hired an investigative reporter to look into some of the cults and to faith healers specifically. Our investigator traveled to a southwestern city where a healing campaign had been advertised some weeks in advance. Adjacent to the huge tent in which thousands would pour in for the service was a smaller tent. For the whole week prior to the services, those who had physical infirmities came to this smaller tent in order to be screened by the associates of the healer. Among those who applied for healing was an elderly Christian gentleman who lived out on the prairie. He lived out in the country. His vision was becoming dim. He most likely was developing cataracts. The only lighting in the little cabin where he lived was a kerosene lamp. He was a devout Christian, read his Bible daily, tried, he, or tried to, and had all the faith necessary for healing if faith does secure healing. His major complaint was that his sight had deteriorated to the point to where he could no longer read his Bible. On the night of his appearance before the healer, the old man was brought up in the atmosphere of a sideshow. The faith healer said, Well, Pop, you can't see anymore. You've gotten old. You can't even see with your glasses. Your vision is failing. Then he reached over and took the old man's spectacles, his glasses, threw them on the platform and stomped them to pieces. He then handed the elderly gentleman a large print Bible, which under the lights necessary for television in those days, 
enabled the gentleman to read John 3.16 out loud to the astonishment and applause of the audience. The elderly gentleman praised God, the healer praised God, the audience praised God, and the old man went back to his dimly lit cabin, could not find his Bible because his glasses were destroyed. The old man went back to the healer, but was told the most discouraging thing a godly man like that could hear, you didn't have enough faith or the healing would have stuck. That was C. Everett Coop, Surgeon General for the United States. J.I. Packer said this, he said to be told that longed-for healing was denied you because of some defect in your faith when you had labored and strained every way you knew to devote yourself to God and to believe for blessing is to be pitchforked into distress, despair, and a sense of abandonment by God. That is a bitter feeling. That is as bitter a feeling as any of this side of hell, particularly if, like most invalids, your sensitivity is already up and your spirits are down. Wow. Bible talks about oil, anointing with oil. What does that mean? Isaiah 1.6 brings up the idea of oil. The Good Samaritan, Luke 10.34, talks about oil. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus never used oil, never anointed anybody with oil. Well, what does that mean? And we don't have time, but oil is a picture of medicine. It's the medicinal Isaiah. Uh, it's the, one writer said, "Is medicine important?" Clearly implied here. Oil meant medicinal me measures given along with the prayers of godly men and women. Did you hear that? Isaiah thirty-eight twenty-one. Now Isaiah said about Hezekiah. He said, "Take them a lamp." He said, "Take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil of the king, and he shall recover." Mark six twelve and thirteen. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out demons, anointed with oil. Many were sick and were healed. First Timothy five twenty-three. Paul says to Timothy, "No longer drink only wine, but use uh, no longer drink any only water, but use." A little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Who did Paul travel with? He traveled with a physician, a doctor, a man by the name of Luke. One writer said this, and I'll close in a moment. One writer pointed out when the aspirin works, it is the Lord who's made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limbs and the bones knit, it is the Lord who has made it knit. There is always a spiritual dimension in healing. On no occasion should a Christian, this writer said, approach a doctor without first approaching God. But I can tell you what we do, we do the opposite. Now the last question is this, why would you want to be healed? My dad was given the diagnosis of smoker's cancer. It had come on his lip, they cut that off. It went into the lymph nodes, they took one of those out. And then finally it kept going. Smoker's cancer is a chain cancer. It starts from here, it goes down into the lymph nodes and then down into the lungs. The doctor told him, he said, um, we gotta get this out. You've heard me say this. They cut him from behind the ear all the way down his neck, all the way down and across his chest. I remember sitting at Primo's Northgate. And as I was sitting there with my dad, I was just kind of joking around when my dad said, Son, he said, I need healing. And he said, I've made this commitment. God, if you'll heal me, I'll work for you. 
God, if you heal me, I'm going to make a difference for the kingdom of God. That was over 30 years ago. At 94 years of age, he teaches Sunday school. He cuts the grass at the church. He and his brother, who was in his 80s, and my dad probably early 90s, they built a wing onto the onto their church. You know why? Because you and I can't pray for healing. We can't pray for health if we plan on using it to watch TV and spend all that time on a narcissistic, self-centered life, playing games, looking at your phone, Facebook. God says, i tell you what I'll do. I'll make a deal with you. You serve me, and I'll let you stay here a lot longer. But there's one thing, one thing about healing. I remember, you remember in England, we were together with missionaries on a cold winter day. And there was a man in England, a missionary, he was sick. And he said, I need the missionaries to pray for me. You know what they did? They put a chair there in front of that mission meeting. That man sat down. And then the missionaries gathered around him. I thought we were going to pray. And the man said, no, 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 no. He turned and looked at this missionary and said, Brother, is there any sin in your life? Is there something you need to confess right now? And that man began to weep. Tears began to trickle down his cheeks. He began to talk about some strongholds of the enemy in his life. He began to talk about some sins, some things that he needed to repent of. He confessed it publicly to all those other missionaries and that, that we were in a castle, the queen mother's sister's castle. And we were sitting in that room and he wept and he cried and he confessed. And my friend, we laid hands on him, we prayed for him, and he was well. You sick? You happy? You in trouble? Pray. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you, and we give you glory. Lord, even as we go to this time of invitation, I pray that nobody would move. Temptation a lot of times is for people to get up and move around or to go out or whatever, but Lord, I pray that people would not move. And Lord, I pray today that whatever may be weighing, someone in this room may be in trouble, may have trouble, may not be any trouble of their own accord. They've done nothing, but they may right now be having trouble. It's not the chastening of the Lord, not the discipline of the Lord. In fact, they're like Job, they're walking with the Lord, but they, they've got trouble. Things are not working out. Then, Lord, I would invite them to come to this altar. Maybe they've had trouble in 2023 to say, God, I need, to, I need you into these circumstances, into this situation. God, I need to know your presence is with me because if I know that, I can face anything. All people listen to that last statement. If I know his presence is with me, I can face any trouble that comes in my life. Lord, there are people in this room right now, things are working out well. Financially, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, things are going good. Uh, it's, this is a good time right now. But they forgot to sing. They forgot to sing praises, which meant they probably forgot to say, oh God, it's all because of you. 
the blessings you've brought into my life or to equip me and to give me the skills and the ability to further your kingdom and to stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. There's some in this room that are legitimately sick. Some that are listening and they're tired of being sick. So God, we pray today that for those that may need a touch of your hand, that dear Lord, we could find godly men and women that would put their hands on an individual and say, I'm going to, I want to pray for you. And that people would be set free. That woman who inched her way through that crowd who said, if I could just touch the tassel, the tassel of his garment. I could just brush my finger across the tassel. I would be made well. And when she did, Jesus, you stopped in the middle of a crowd. Somebody touched me. Lord, there are all kinds of people that have touched you. know, somebody touched me because power left me. And that woman came forward and said, my life has been spent with doctors, been spent over and over again seeking every cure, and I'm at the end of my rope. But I'm well. Jesus said, daughter of Israel. He called her a daughter. He never used that term. He said, your faith has made you well. Now go. We have to have faith, and sometimes, dear Lord, we're like that woman. I'm strong, but I'm tired of being strong. I'm struggling in my faith. I need some godly men and women to wrap their arms around me who are at another level and to pray for me. Lord, may we begin to do that. Sunday school classes interrupted with people that say, hey, listen, we can't do the lesson. I need prayer for services and worship that's interrupted where somebody comes and says, I need prayer. I need, I need help. I'm struggling. And Lord, most of all, for confession to be done in a world that is not judgmental and harsh that doesn't label people no matter what they may say to us. Tragedy is some people feel more welcomed at Buffalo Wild Wings and sharing their heartaches and their pains than they do in a church. So God, make us what we need to be, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You come. You come. May never be a moment like this moment.